The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. They say that you should always start a sermon with a story. But how do you talk about a, a, how do you find a story about the sheer destruction of the whole world that's not going to make everyone just decide that they want to get up and leave and go to the bathroom? So my anecdote is this. I went whitewater rafting several years ago. And if you ever go whitewater rafting, it's a little bit like slowly dying at the hands of others. Because you're trapped on a small rubber boat with an assortment of other people. None of you know how to pilot or steer or paddle or anything. They throw you in this thing with someone who is probably living in a tent by the, you know, in a van down by the river where we're rafting. And so I'm not sure if they're a reliable guide. And we're going to send you over a series of rocks and white water to another place where they allegedly will pick you up and bring you back. Now, obviously, I'm here to tell you that I survived this tale, but I'm sure there are some people who are still paddling down river. But as you go white water rafting, and you go over these rocks, the idea behind this is to have fun. And it is fun as long as you stay inside the boat. Should you fall out of the boat, all of the fun sort of disappears. Sheer terror takes upon you as you are seeing your skull, you're visualizing your body just bouncing over boulders as the water propels you ceaselessly without end down to, who knows, a hydroelectric dam where you will finally fall to your death and the pain will be over. Anybody else want to go whitewater rafting? I'm getting a group later this summer. Okay, yes, I see one hand back there. So I want you to visualize that in terms of the flood. And you're like, okay, well, that's a very weird anecdote. I told you I didn't really have a good anecdote for the flood. But the image I want you to have there is the reason why when you fall out of the boat, you were propelled downstream is that there are forces beyond your control who have taken control of you. You are now at the mercy uh, and the will of this torrent of water moving downhill under the force of gravity on the path of least resistance which is sometimes over the boulder and sometimes around the boulder and sometimes even under the boulder, moving you down as it moves everything caught in it down. And that, my friends, is an example of the justice of the universe. Now, I want to entitle this sermon from a verse of Scripture. The verse of Scripture is Amos chapter 5, verse 24. Let justice flow like many waters, and righteousness like an unfailing stream. So in the image of our whitewater river, I want you to understand that justice will move forward unceasingly to its goal. 
which is the will of the Father. Now, I want you to understand that I'm not talking about judgment, but justice. There is a difference. Judgment is simply the negative aspect of justice, right? If you are the one who has been harmed in a civil court case or in some sort of dispute, then getting justice is positive for you, right? You want justice. But if you are the one who has wronged someone else, then you don't want to get justice. Because for you, justice is judgment. We sometimes think that mercy negates judgment. It does not negate judgment. It simply moves the focus of justice away from you. Now, I have an, another story, story here, an example that may be possibly problematic within this body of believers, given the, given the amount of visible ink that I see upon your skin... But I have often joked with my family that should I get a tattoo, it will be on my neck, and it will say, Leviticus 19, 28, only God can judge me. <laughs> now, the funny part about that is that Leviticus 19, 28 is, you shall not put tattoos on your body for the dead, for I am the Lord, only God can judge me. Right? That's funny. That's the humor, right? Why did God say that? Right, we, we think of mercy as a New Testament concept. Luke and Matthew give us this wonderful phrase that we often see, you know, people bring it out whenever you try to bring to them the gospel or even the righteousness of God. They always want to say, do not judge me, only God can judge me. Right? Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. However, what is missing there is the, what is required for forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a setting aside of justice. Forgiveness is a payment of justice in a way that is not to your detriment. In fact, both passages... Leviticus 19, do not put a tattoo on your body for I am the Lord. And Leviticus 6, do not judge lest you will be judged. Both of them link justice to a distinction from the sinful culture around them. Right? Justice in both the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament and the New Testament is inextricably linked to holiness. Holiness is the goal of justice. God, in his holiness, is trying to restore us back into right relationship with him. That is the just and right thing for him to do. Anything apart from being in right relationship with God is unjust to us. It is unfair to us. However, there are negative consequences of us being brought back into right relationship with God. That is what we might call judgment. So I want to focus today on justice, but it's going to sound a little bit like judgment because of the passage we're in. 
12 times in the Hebrew Bible, God's judgment is linked to his aspect, his attribute, his characteristic of justice. There is not a way for God to bring us justice that does not require in some way judgment. Okay, have I clarified that so that we can move forward, right? So I'm going to try to talk about justice, and you're going to hear judgment, and I want you to fight, <laughs> fight to think about justice. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is an aspect of the passage itself. We are in this part of Genesis in which the story seems to repeat itself over and over and over again. In fact, from Genesis 6 through Genesis 9, we keep getting repetitions of things. Now, traditionally in scholarship of the Hebrew Bible, we attribute this to sources. There was one person who wrote the story of the flood, and someone else wrote a story of the flood, and then a third person comes along and takes the stories and is like, I like this one, and I like this one, and I'm just going to kind of stick them together. We're just going to put it in the batter, and we're just going to push it together, and we're just going to make another story out of it. And what's interesting about this is that whoever, if, this is the, if that is the way it happened, whoever is this last person putting the story together does not know how stories need to be told. Because they keep saying the same thing over and 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 over again. So that we're like, hmm, this looks like it's three different stories. Okay, that just seems weird to me. Okay, so if you watch the Discovery Channel, particularly around Christmas and Easter, we're going to trot out some sort of like source theory. Now, I'm not saying there's not sources. I'm saying it was 5,000 years ago this book came down to us, and I don't know if we still have those sources or not. Okay. What I do want you to focus on is that whoever wrote this wanted us to have these repetitions, right? So my focus is not on whether it comes from different stories or not. It does, right? There was only eight people that survived this flood. They had to tell the story to someone, right? So there's a story. I just don't know if that story has a lot of repetitions in it or didn't have a lot of repetitions. I don't know. What I do is here we have a passage that seems to say things several times. And I want you to not be afraid of the repetitions or bored by the repetitions. I want you to see that the repetitions are repeatedly emphasizing a truth that we need to understand, right? Because if this story comes down to us so fragmented and unraveled that we want to see these sources in it, then someone who's smarter than us, decided to keep that story all frayed for thousands of years so that it comes to us. Do you understand what I'm trying to say, right? If we were going to come through and make this, you know, some sort of like, I don't know, Disney Marvel movie, we're going to just sort of smooth it all out. Anybody like, you know, like Star Wars, and then you go, wait, I thought, I thought that Yoda was from Dagobah 3, but they said that he's from Dagobah 2. I know some of you have yarn walls in your closets, and you're like charting out all the inconsistencies between like Ant-Man and the Wasp and like Avengers 2, and then like, but that gem wasn't there. It was actually, I got it, okay? People do that with the Hebrew Bible too. What I'm trying to say is the story as it appears is important, Okay? Now, the repetition that God says something and then he does it in the story 
and then it says again that he did it, or it says again what he said he was going to do, emphasizes again for me how justice appears. Sometimes in this passage, we're going to see that the repetition emphasizes something positive. And sometimes we're going to see in this passage that the repetition emphasizes something negative. Remember, justice has two faces, a positive and a negative. The repetition, I think, is important for us to understand. So now, if you will turn with me to Genesis 7, having introduced enough, let us read together. I am reading from the Holman Christian Standard Version, which is the one I will use today. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your family, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. You were to take with you seven pairs, a male and its female of all the clean animals, and two of the animals that are not clean, a male and its female, and seven pairs, male and female, of the birds of the sky, in order to keep offspring alive on the face of the whole earth. Seven days from now, I will make it rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe off from the face of the earth every living thing I have made. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and water covered the earth. So Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the waters of the flood. From the clean animals, unclean animals, birds, and every creature that crawls on the ground, two of each, male and female, entered the ark with Noah, just as God had commanded him. Seven days later, the waters of the flood came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the watery depths burst forth. The floodgates of the skies were opened And the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Today, I want you to see in Genesis 7, 1 through 11-ish, three ways in which God displays his justice in the flood. Three ways that God displays his justice in the flood. First, God displays his justice for all the world. God displays his justice for all the world. He first displays justice for the righteous. Genesis 7, 1, I will read again for you. Then the Lord said to Noah, Into the ark you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. Now, The interesting part about this is the juxtaposition of you and all your house by the direction of this speech, you alone. Enter the ark, for I have seen that you alone. In Hebrew, this is ki ocha, not ki ochem. If it was with a mem, it means y'all, down in South Carolina, when it come from. But ocha means you individually. It is a singular you. So why does you and all of your household get in? Because you alone were righteous. What's interesting to me is that there is a parallel in the book of Genesis to this story. 
Another time God has looked upon the earth and he has seen great wickedness. And he decides to come down to see how wicked the people are. And when he does that, he first meets his loyal follower, Abraham. And Abraham, in the story, after serving God some nice breakfast, then follows God down the road to the sinful city of Sodom. And all the way down, Abraham is pleading with God to do justice. Genesis 18, 23 and 25. Then Abraham stepped forward and said, Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Wouldn't the judge of all the earth do what is just? What proceeds in this conversation is for Abraham to plead on behalf of the city of Sodom. What if there are 50 people in the city that are righteous? And God says, then I would save it. And then Abraham thinks about it a little bit and goes, well, what if there are only 45 people who are righteous? He said, I would save it. Okay, well, what if there's only like 40 people? Well, what if there's like 30 people? there's like only 10 people. What's interesting about this is that in the city of Sodom, there is one family that Abraham thinks is righteous, which is his nephew Lot. His nephew Lot, Lot's wife, Lot's daughters, and their husbands. That gives us eight people. Now, if you turn to Genesis 19, you see that Only Lot and his daughters are saved. His wife is not saved. The husbands are not saved, and the city is not saved. There are not even 10 people in a city who are righteous. I want to emphasize that because in Genesis 7, there is possibly only one person, not in a city, but in All of the inhabited world who is righteous. Only one. And on his benefit, is he not only saved, but his whole family is saved. Now, this is a very problematic passage, right? Like we have, well, why do we save these other people? Perhaps they're not righteous. Perhaps the three wives of his sons are not righteous. Perhaps his wife is not righteous. Why do they get to be on the ark? Does this bother you? It bothered me. And it bothered people in the time of the New Testament. Now, there is a book that was written. We found it at Qumran among the Dead Sea Scrolls called the Genesis Apocryphon. It is an example of what we call rewritten scripture. So we take a book of the Bible, in this case Genesis, and we write it. It's a little bit like fan fiction, right? It's like, you know, you always wondered what happened to that one character, right? You know, like... Well, what happened to the other guy that was in the twilight? I mean, you know, not the werewolf guy, but the other werewolf guy. You know, that werewolf guy. Like, I want to know what happened to him. Like, that's what rewritten scripture is. It's sort of fan fiction on the Bible. What happened to these people? Or what was her name? Or what happened? Where did that guy come from? So, in the Genesis Apocryphon, this is written probably in around the 2nd century before Christ. 
Could have been as early as the third century, could be as late as the first century before Christ. Just before the time of Jesus and the apostles, we have someone who writes this book, Genesis Apocryphon, and their question is, why Noah and his family? Why Noah and his family? Now, according to a scholar, his name is Daniel Machiello, who studied and translated the uh, Genesis Apocryphon for us and has a commentary on it, he says it's, he notes that Noah's impeccable righteous status is the singular striking feature of the Genesis Apocryphon. The whole book focuses on how righteous Noah is. Even Abraham gets sort of second fiddle to Noah in this book. Someone really liked Noah. And in this book, the writer of the Apocryphon says, these are the words of Noah, so I considered all the behavior of the sons of the earth. I understood and saw all. But I, Noah, found grace, prominence, and justification in the eyes of the Lord. Right? The writer sees that it is Noah's right performance that has saved him. What's the problem with that? Anybody perfect today? You didn't have to be just perfect today. You had to be perfect for 600 years. Anybody? Yeah? Anybody? We're all going to miss the boat? That's what I thought. We're all going to miss the boat. In fact, I'm going to come back and talk about Noah's righteousness because I'm going to argue that even Noah wasn't that righteous. Right? No one, not Noah, not you, and sadly not me, are righteous enough to earn God's grace and favor. But there is justice for the righteous. Perhaps we should put that in some quote marks. The gospel frees us from the right performance that we owe by showing us not only our own inadequacy to be righteous, but also Christ's perfect obedience. Right? Only one human has ever been perfectly obedient, and he was also God, which you're not, and neither am I. Right? So perhaps you have to be God to keep God's law. Huh. Huh. Hold that. Stick a pin in it. You got a yarn wall. I know you got a yarn wall. Stick a pin in that yarn wall. We're going to come back to that. The gospel frees us from perfect performance. So there's not only justice for the righteous, there is also justice for the clean and the unclean. This is the category that we should find ourselves in. Right. This law that God gives us, this is part of that, you know, Old Testament Hebrew Bible that everyone's really freaked out about, right? Everyone gets, you know, they get really encouraged in January. They make the resolution, right? I'm going to start reading the Bible. I'm going to open up the first page, you know, Genesis 1. It's going well, and it's creation, and it's like Cain and Abel. And you're like, I remember this from VBS, and do, 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 do. Keep on going. Exodus, you know, there's like miracles and like snakes and stuff, and it's really cool. And then you get to like Genesis, Exodus 20. And it's like the Ten Commandments. And you're like, okay. And then you get to Exodus 21, and it's like, 
If you have a male slave of 17 years or younger, then you will give unto him three talents and a bird, and you will slap him with the his... You know, and most people are trying to read this, you know, right before you go to bed, or at five in the morning, you get to the Leviticus, it's about like, what do you do if there's like mildew on your wall, how many birds do you have to like kill and slaughter their blood, and you are falling asleep, right? Like, when people tell me that the first time they've ever tried to read the Bible, they made it all the way through Leviticus, I'm like, liar, okay? Liar. Now... All of that law does not focus as much on sin as we would think. If you kick it up with some five-hour energy and you go back into Leviticus, most of Leviticus is about cleanness, not sinlessness. Well, why is that? See, cleanness is about being able to be in the presence of God in his temple. Sinlessness is about being in the presence of God in his holy heaven. You first have to deal with the earth level before you're ever going to get to the heaven level. Do you understand? The problem is not whether you're sinless or not. You're not. The problem is whether you're clean or not. Genesis 7, verses 2 through 3. You, will take, you are to take with you seven pairs, a male and its female, of all of the clean animals, and two of the animals that are not clean, a male and its female, and seven pair male and female of the birds of the sky, in order to keep offspring alive on the face of the whole earth. Again, let's go back to that little part I talked about, the sources that I'm not going to be create a problem with. This is one of those areas where the sources sort of kind of poke out at you. Is it two of every animal or 14 of every animal or is it a seven of this one and two of this one and three of that one? I don't know. Why clean and unclean is the real question. See, at the end of the flood, Noah takes some of these clean animals And he offers them as a sacrifice to the Lord. In Genesis 8, verse 20, Then Noah built an an altar unto the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every type of clean bird and offered burnt offspring on the altar. That's why we have to have more than two. If we just had two clean animals and then you offer them as sacrifices, well then, I killed all the clean animals. Right? Right? So we have to have some extra clean animals, right, in order to have sacrifices. We're preparing to have sacrifices. God has already prepared for himself a sacrifice before such a sacrifice needs to be given. Huh. Stick a pin in that. We're going to come back to that. But what's interesting is that multiple times in Genesis 7, we talk about these clean and unclean animals. Multiple times. Genesis 7, verses 8 through 9. From the clean animals, unclean animals, birds, and every creature that crawls on the ground, two of each male and female entered the ark with Noah, just as God had commanded him. Genesis 7, verses 14 through 16. They entered it, the ark, with all the wildlife according to their kinds, all livestock according to their kinds, the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, all birds, every fowl, and of everything that has wings according to its kinds, two of all flesh that has breath of life 
In it entered the ark with Noah. Those that entered male and female of all flesh entered just as God had commanded him. Why the repetitions? Because, my friends, not all the clean and unclean animals got in. Genesis 7, verses 21 through 23. Every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. Everything with breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils. Everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the surface of the ground from mankind to livestock to the creatures that crawled to the birds of the sky and they were wiped off the earth. The enumeration of kinds here is important. It's not just the clean people who get saved. Can I get an amen? Right? It's of all the kinds of people. That's not to say that that means all the people, right? It's from all the kinds of people that get saved. That is a very sobering thought if you think about it. The problem in our modern culture with the gospel is not the positive side of the gospel that we can be saved. It's the negative side of the gospel that not everyone is saved. Right? It would be so much easier if we just had a y'all all come big old party and we all just get in there, right? And the problem is not the people who know that they are unclean. It's the people who are unclean who think they're clean that cause the problem. Right? It is not the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the Romans that had a problem with Jesus. It was the good church people who had a problem with Jesus. Do you know why? Because he kept telling them that they were not clean. What do you mean I'm not clean, Jesus? I have kept all of the law. I ain't murdered anyone today or ever. To which Jesus says, but you wanted to. Well, Jesus, I have tithed even the spices in my spice cabinet. Anybody make something, you're like, okay, well, I got to put like a little bit over here for Jesus, some turmeric for Jesus, clothes for Jesus. Like anybody tithing their spices when you're making food? You're not righteous is what you're saying. <laughs> tithe everything. Jesus, I tithe everything. And he said, but did you tithe to me the things that I deserve? You tithed everything except for who you were. Y'all don't hear me now. Okay, so. Cleanness and uncleanness is the domain in which the law works and it is also the domain in which the gospel works. So, 
In Leviticus 11, remember I told you this is that part that nobody reads, but it's very exciting if you get in it. Like if you, get, like if you just get it and you are like, ooh, cleanness and uncleanness, woo, five-hour energy is kicking in, woo. All right. Le- Leviticus 11 enumerates what are clean animals and what are unclean animals and the rules by which you know whether an animal is clean or not. Why, and it goes for several verses through all the sorts of animals, by the way, you know, it's not just bacon that's against the Lord. It's like pretty much everything except for cows and sheep. So while y'all going out and eating roadkill, I'm not looking at any of y'all, but some of y'all are really close to Kentucky here is all I'm saying. You have sinned against the Lord. Okay. At the end of that passage, it says, Leviticus 11, verse 47, you will know these things in order to distinguish between the clean and the unclean, between the animals that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. See, cleanness is about the foods you eat. We don't think of that. We're over here trying to argue with God about whether I murdered someone in my heart or not, and he says, y'all don't get how deep this holiness thing goes. I'm concerned about what kind of a hamburger you're eating. What kind of clothes you're wearing. My sense of holiness pervades so much deeper than you are aware of. And you know what he does? He gives us the rules to know what he wants. Not that we can keep them, but we can at least know what he wants. That is loving, my friends. That is loving to tell you, even when I know that you can't do something, what I want you to do. But what's interesting is the animals of the boat were not to be eaten because no one was eating animals. What? My vegans all perked up. What do you mean people weren't eating animals? Oh, before the flood, people were all vegans. Well... They were also wicked, so there's just that. <laughs> so I'm just, no, I'm just kidding. I like to, you know, listen. No, animals were not being eaten before the flood. It says after the flood in, in Genesis chapter 9, unless my verse, verse 3, it says, Now every living creature will be for you for food, just as I gave you the green plants. Now I give you everything to eat. So the clean animal, see, what I'm, what I'm trying to, I hope you're catching, Leviticus 11 is about what clean animals you can eat. But these clean animals are not for eating. They're for another purpose, a higher purpose. Victor Hamilton, who is a commentator on on this passage of Genesis, says, to be accurate, the text does not tell us that Noah is to take aboard clean and unclean animals. He is to bring with him animals that are clean and not clean. The chapter discreetly avoids the term tameh, which means unclean. So there's clean, misses the mark, not clean, and unclean. Right? When you were a sinner or a prostitute or a tax collector, you were tameh. You were unclean. You could not be touched. A detail we miss. When all of these people come and eat with Jesus, 
It drives the Pharisees wild because they are unclean. To even sit at the same table with them is to corrupt yourself in such a way that God is displeased with you. Yet God is well pleased to dwell with the unclean. That's what the Pharisees miss. The text does not say unclean, it says not clean. It says those that have missed the mark, those that are not good enough for the purpose. Another commentator, Umberto Consuto, says, the various categories of living creatures that are detailed in this passage are detailed 12 times in 12 different ways from the beginning of Genesis 6 to the end of Genesis 9. 12 different ways. 12 is a significant number in Scripture. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. 12 in Scripture indicates a totality of things, a fullness of things. God, in describing these animals, describes both clean and unclean things of all of these different types, 12 different times. He wants to make sure you know that nothing has been left out from the view of this flood. Now, this is the part that I think is kind of interesting. What did the animals do to deserve the flood? Do animals sin? Why do they get punished? Go back to Genesis 7, verses 21 through 23. Everything that had the breath of life, cows, pigs, bears, walruses, butterflies, birds, other birds, still other birds, all died in the flood. Why? Why did all of the earth, did all of these animals get punished for human sin? Because in every way we have described these animals and the articulation and the classification of animals, in the same way God in this passage is communicating in every way and in every form how corrupt this world has become. And it's our fault. The animals did not bring this judgment on themselves. We brought judgment on them. And we are the means, right? Noah builds the ark. He is the means by which some have been selected out as a remnant to be saved. A man must save the world. A pure, righteous, holy man. Go ahead and tell me who you think I'm talking about. Jesus. This is the Sunday school answer time. Jesus, one man has to save all the world from all of the corruption of sin. In Leviticus, this idea of cleanness and uncleanness, of holiness and corruptness pervades every aspect of the human experience. In the flood, in the days before the flood, human sinfulness has corrupted and pervaded and permeated every aspect of the created world. And it is through sacrifice that the animals 
will be saved. So those seven pairs of clean animals that are going to be this sacrifice at the end, it's not just a sacrifice for, thank you for saving me from the flood. Sacrifice in Scripture is always connected not only to thanksgiving, but also to restoration in the way that we interact with God. The first sacrifices you have in Leviticus always deal with your holiness and your sin. The next sacrifices deal with your cleanness and your, your ability to be in God's presence. And finally, the sacrifices deal with your relationship with God. There cannot be relationship without restoration. <clears throat> and there cannot be restoration if there is not righteousness. Again, cleanness is not about moral purity, but it is about righteousness. To be righteous is to be clean. <clears throat> In many ways, this passage begins an echo that is going to resonate from passage to passage all the way up to the coming of Christ. 40 days and 40 nights of a flood. Not to steal Jordan's message for next time. He's going to deal with the chronology of the flood. But 40 days and 40 nights of a flood are 40 years in the wilderness, are 40 days of purification when they get to the mountain in which God appears, are 40 days in which Elijah purifies himself so that he can see God, are 40 days the prophet Ezekiel mourns for Jerusalem in Babylon after the exile, 40 days that Jesus wanders in the wilderness tested by Satan to prove his loyalty, not to God, but to Satan. He proves to Satan who he's loyal to. 40 days. Righteousness is tied into this. <clears throat> and yet, as Hamilton notes, these unclean animals have been spared from drowning. They are as much an object of Yahweh's compassion as Noah, the righteous one, is. If nothing else, their inclusion in those that are delivered in, is partial confirmation of the fact that in the Hebrew Bible, sinful is not normally the synonym of unclean. Now, perhaps I lost you with the discussion of uncleanness. So I'm going to ask you a very easy question, not a spiritual question, hopefully one that you can answer honestly. Did you shower today? Why? Why did you shower today? In order to be clean, right? Now, David Leffel, who's the author of a book called Total Skin, The Definitive Guide to Whole Skin Care for Life, is a dermat he's also a dermatologist, he recommends that you only shower for three minutes every other day. Just rinse it off every other day. Anybody want to take me up on that? Why? 
because that's not how we describe cleanness as our society. Leffel says, I don't want you to do the Lady Macbeth thing where you're just scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing all of your skin off. Quote, the purpose of showering is to eliminate dirt. Now this may cause you some discomfort, but even Jesus says that we don't have to bathe all the time. You don't believe me. John 13, verse 10. The one who is clean who has bathed, need not wash anything except for his feet, for he is already clean. Cleanness is about entry into a relationship. Right? The reason why we bathe is that you don't want to go get on the bus or go to work or go out to whatever fun event you want to do, and people are like, right? You bathe to be in right relationship with people. In much the same way, we need to be in right relationship with God. Not only are moral failings interrupt right relationship with God, but also the uncleanness of our body, of the way we live our daily life, interrupts right relationship with God. And all of that is going to be consumed in now the third part of how justice is revealed for all of the world. Finally, there is justice for the earth, by which I'm talking about the soil itself. You see, human corruption did not just pervade the animal kingdom and corrupt the animals, it also corrupts the ground, There is an environmentalism to the gospel. Our sin hurts creation. Because we are the stewards of what God has given to us. And just as the corruption corrupts all of who we are, it corrupts everything we touch and interact with. Verse 4 of chapter 7. Seven days from now I will make it rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe off from the face of the earth every living thing that I have made. In verse 10 it says, Seven days later the waters of the flood came on the earth. Now, what's interesting about this is leading into the flood in Genesis 6, we repeatedly get this description that God has. Genesis 6 verses 11 through 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness or violence. He saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. What is the locus, the place in which the corruption resides for God? It's not the people, it's the land. Right? God is pissed off because you have corrupted the earth. With your sin. This goes back to cleanness. The dirt is not the problem, people. You're the problem. You make the dirt dirty. Mind blown. Right? The word for corrupt is shahat. Shahat is this idea of total corruption. And it describes both the creatures and the humans, but also the earth itself. 
Hamilton comments on this part saying, the flood uncreates creation and returns the earth to a pre-creation period in which there is only water. Water symbolizes cleanness. Right? So God takes the flood to scour the earth of all of the corruption human has brought. I need you to feel how deep this corruption goes. In Romans chapter 8, we read that and it's, it begins with a beautiful description of how we are restored through the gospel back to God. And the, at the end of it, we have this beautiful lineage of how the, the process of gospel moves us from a state of sinfulness to a state of righteousness and holiness before God. But in the middle of the passage, in verses 19 through 22 of chapter 8 of Romans, it says... For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's children to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, unwillingly, but because of him who subjected it, in, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children." For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. The corruption begins in chapter 4 of Genesis when Cain strikes down his brother Abel and his blood pours out on the soil. And what does God say to Cain? The ground cries out to me for the murder of your brother. The ground cries out to me. Creation is subjected to the futility of our sin. And it can do nothing except cry out for redemption. God, the gospel comes and cleanses every part of creation. Remember, I said this passage is about justice, not judgment. You don't have to judge dirt. You don't judge animals. You judge people. But you have to bring justice to everything. Some later commentators, after the time of the New Testament, argue that up to three hands depths of soil were scoured off by the flood. Why? Why three hands depths? Why that number? That is the depth of soil that a plow can plow when it hits the field. It's everything a human has touched. Do you get it? Everything the human has touched has to be removed and cleansed. And they argue that because the human touched it with corruption, even the soil has disobeyed God. They argue the reason why there are weeds in the ground is because of humans. Our corruption permeated into the soil and made the soil bad so that it bears bad crops. I mean, that level of awareness of our sin should drive us almost to insanity. That nothing we do 
prevents corruption from invading it. Not only every relationship with a human that we have, not every intention of our heart, but everything we do, even when we try to grow our own food, we have corrupted creation by who we are as sinful people. And in the New Testament, Jesus turns that image of soil back to describe how our hearts are before God. In the parable of the four soils, he says that some of us are like hard-packed soil that a plow cannot plow, that nothing will ever break through, and the gospel will never reach us. On the other hand, he says some of us are well-plowed soil, good soil, so that it's ready to hear the gospel and receive it. And as Hosea chapter 10, verse 12 implores, sow for yourselves righteousness and reap faithful love. Break up the unplowed ground. It is time to seek the Lord until he comes and sends righteousness on you like rain. You are the soil. God is sending rain as righteousness. The flood for the ground was a good thing. It was cleansing the ground of everything the humans had done. But we don't want to hear the gospel that way. We just want to see the gospel like a torrential flood, wiping everything out, destroying everything. How can God do that? Because he's making things right. He's bringing justice to the world. <clears throat> God not only displays his justice in all the world, he displays his justice in all of his dealings. Chapter, verse 5 of chapter 7. Noah did everything the Lord had commanded him. And then later on in the second part of the passage, Genesis chapter, Genesis verse 16 of chapter 7, but the Lord shut him in the ark. A Jewish commentator, Nahum Sarna, writes, there is, well, there was nothing left to Noah's initiative about how to build the ark. He himself must fashion the instrument of his own salvation. But he also notes that while in the Babylonian versions of the flood, a putnashim, that's a wonderful name for your dog, by the way, a putnashim, and Atrahasis closed their boat's door themselves. But the Bible, and I quote here, the text is very careful to note that the salvation of Noah is solely due to the divine will and not to any independent means of Noah's own. As we look at righteousness as cleansing the world, not only from what we might think of as sin, but all the way down to the lowest or most pervasive level of corruption we have, we see in the end, Noah's righteousness could not cleanse the land. Noah's righteousness did not save the animals. Noah's righteousness did not even save Noah. In the end, God must save us. In the end, we are at the mercy of God. Hamilton notes that the ark has no rudder, no sail, 
no compass. It's just a boat. Adrift on the sea. He says, if Noah is to emerge alive from the ark, it will be only by the grace and protecting presence of Yahweh. Divine mercy rather than human skill will be the determining factor. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to close with this illustration. This past Friday, the U.S. Coast Guard had to rescue three boaters who were adrift in the Atlantic Ocean. Their 20-foot fishing boat had run, had, had got caught in a lobster trap and had flipped over. And the Coast Guard came to find the three men clinging to the side of their 20-foot fishing boat. Now, not all of you are fishermen. A lobster trap is not much bigger than this pulpit. It has a rope that goes to the surface of the ocean where there is a well-distinguished fluorescent buoy with a number on it. 20-foot boat, lobster trap, flip the boat. Everybody with me? Big boat, little lobster trap, flipped over. Now, what I want to point out to you is this. A boat with a rudder and a compass and a steering wheel ran over a buoy that was visible from the surface of the ocean and it led to tragedy. A boat with no rudder, no compass, no steering wheel was brought safely through a torrential flood. Why? Because of God. God's justice comes in his time. The scripture says that, let nothing escape you, brothers. This is 2 Peter chapter 3. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay in his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, wanting none to perish, but all to come to repentance. And yet, the sober truth is this. God is waiting, but you are not coming. God is waiting, but you are not coming. He has extended his gospel to all of humanity. In many of these writings, including in Genesis Apocryphon, Noah is depicted as a preacher of righteousness. For a hundred years, he builds a boat, a giant boat. Couldn't miss it. People probably coming up to him every day. Hey, Noah, what's the boat for? Hey, Noah, what you doing? And he says, justice is coming. Righteousness is coming. God is not going to let us just live in this world of corruption. He's going to make it right. And yet in the end, <clears throat> in Genesis chapter 7, verse 23, it says, only Noah and his family were left those who were with him in the ark. A hundred years, no one came. Animals came from all over the world. Clean animals, unclean animals, even little scorpions, probably mosquitoes, right? 
All of them came, all of them heeded the call from God. But we humans do not listen. I was trying to find an example of mandatory justice. Put it into Google, mandatory justice. And I came upon a series of discussions about what is justice. I found many of them discussing our judicial system and how it is unfair, how we let criminals off free, and how we punish people. And they focused on two of the ten amendments in the Bill of Rights. The Fifth Amendment, which reaches no person shall be held to answer for any capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on presentment or indictment of a grand jury and excepting in cases arising in the military or the militia. Nor shall any person be subject to the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb or shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself or be deprived of life, liberty, and property without the due process of law, or shall have private property taken for the public use without just compensation. And the Sixth Amendment reads, In all criminal proceedings, the accused shall enjoy the right of a speedy and public trial by the impartial jury of the state, the district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have previously been ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor and having the assistance of counsel for his defense. This last one forms what we call the basis of the Miranda rights. The right to an attorney, the right to silence. Why, we should ask, did the founders need to establish these rights? Why do they have to write the Bill of Rights? Because we, humans, both victims and perpetrators, are wicked. See, the problem I had in this Google search was no one talked about that we are wicked. Justice cannot be expressed or enacted by the wicked, right? No one, all of his compatriots, could not clean up the land or uncorrupt the sin. Only a pure one can do that. And a pure one has. The gospel has come to us who are late in time. Jesus, God who has taken on our humanity and lived in our way in the way we could not live and died the death we deserved has made a way for justice to be enacted in the world. As Proverbs 28.5 reads, the wicked do not understand justice, but those who love the Lord comprehend it completely. Justice is in the hands of the Lord only, and only those that see their need of him will comprehend it completely. God's justice is displayed for all the world, for the righteous for the clean and the unclean, and even for the, the earth itself, for creation itself. God displays justice in all of his dealings, in his plan and in his timing. And finally, God displays his justice to all people, the righteous and the wicked. Let us pray.
Dearest Father, we thank you today that you are a God of justice, that you have enacted justice in this universe, that justice is one not only of your attributes, but also of your plans in this world. We thank you, Lord, that you have taught us justice. You have set in our hearts a sense of justice that we cry out for. Even in our political systems, we have always sought justice. And we thank you, Lord, that you have provided the means of justice. That through the life and death of your son, Jesus... You have provided a way in which justice can be enacted in our world and which everything, our sinfulness, our uncleanness, and the corruption that we have done can be made right. We thank you, Lord, that you have enacted justice and we plead now that your justice would be enacted in our time. Come, Lord Jesus, and restore the world into the way you have made it. Come, Lord Jesus, and restore our hearts to you. Come, Lord Jesus, make us your people. Call us to you. Make us holy like you. In these things we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.